0: Heavenly Father, God, this is your word. You allow us to look into it and see you in it, to see your will, your ways, your glory. God, I pray that you help my brothers and sisters to focus on your word, open their minds, bring them closer to your truth, understanding of your truth, Lord, that they may be inspired and changed by it, that they may love you more, that they may follow you harder, pursue you more. God, help us to see the glories of your truth. God, the things that I don't make clear, Lord, I pray that throughout the week, Lord, He mm-hmm. make that clear to them, provide illustrations to them, God, that fit, and that they may see Your truth and rejoice and honor You and glorify Your name. That is my prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Mm-hmm. And I want to say just this thing up as well, uh, brother Holy them tell me about Sunday they were watching, Holy Blackman sermon. And I was uh I started watching it as well. And the is like 45 minutes, but his introduction was like 25 minutes. Yeah. And I'm like, come on get to the point, right? <laughs> But then I'm looking at my text, and I have a pretty long introduction. <laughs> so like, I see, don't so be judging folks, girl, right? So just, I just kind of want to give you a heads up. We, we're going to dig into the text, we're going we're to lead into it. We're going to kind of fuse into it. So, so back to this word that Paul uses here to describe God's will. Paul uses the word mystery in my text, the NASV. He says the mystery of God's will. Now, in our modern day context, when you hear the word mystery, what are we thinking? We're thinking of something often like spooky, right? Something mystery that's hidden and unknown, right? As a kid, for example, one of my favorite shows was called Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if some of you guys remember that. Some of y'all maybe be too young for that. But it was, it was a show called Unsolved Mysteries. And the reason that Paul here in this text, Ephesians, and all of his other letters where he speaks of God's will, the reason he calls God's will a mystery is because God's will is often unknown to us. It's often hidden. And his will often goes beyond our understanding, right? So he calls it the mystery of God's will. See, there are parts of God's will that are revealed to us, right? Right? But there's things that God specifically just makes clear in Scripture. There's certain areas that we can go to, and we know this is God's will in this area. This is God's will, you know, that um, I don't fornicate, right? We know that's God's will. There's no, there's no question. We know it's his will that we care for the poor and for the orphan and the will. But that's specifically called out in God's will. We know that's what we're supposed to do. Then there's other areas where we're not sure. We're not sure of God's will. Um, there's times when we go to God in prayer, right? We're looking for, um, we have to make a major decision. Maybe we're, we're praying about a marriage that we are going to enter into. So we seek God's face to get direction on, should I enter into this marriage? Is this marriage your will, God? Or it may be a job that we're going to take. And we go and we pray to God and we say, is this, this job your will? Or shall I attend this school, God? Is it your will that I attend this school? And we go to the Lord in prayer and, and God does answer us. He gives us insight. He he gives us direction, whether it's specifically through his word or through a brother or sister who comes in and speaks a word and provides confirmation on on God's will. So, So God does do that when we go and seek his face. We seek his face when we're making major purchases, right? When you're buying a house, your first house, I know me and my wife, we were praying. We want to know if this is God's will, and we often seek God's will or major purchases. Now, we don't do it when it comes to like the value meal, we're going to take McDonald's, right? We don't go and pray, God, What is your will? Do I take number one and number two? You know why? Because God has given us this thing called wisdom as well, right? So he's given us wisdom. He's given us his freedom. We can make certain types of decisions. So we don't pray about each meal or which meal at the time that we're going to um, uh, do. But with that direction that he gives, with that direction and with all decisions and actions in the world, they're all a part of this, this grand narrative, this grand story that God is telling. See, there is a purpose for all things. All things, all historical events, from the election of certain figures in political office to the major historical tragedies and triumphs, all of the events of life are part of God's grand Narrative, a narrative that leads to a climax or conclusion that God has preordained. So God is actively involved in creation and in human history. But not all people see it this way. Not all people see it this way because God's will is is often hid or it's veiled and it's concealed. And so because it's concealed and I know many people draw their own conclusions and they believe that God is hands off of his creation. They see God as kind of like the, the person who, who winds up a clock and just lets it run. Or like that toy, you know that toy that kids play with where they get and they wind it up and they wind it up and then they, they let it go. And then from there it just goes and goes into it. it. It runs out of energy. That That's how some people believe God is. They believe that God has no active role in human history and that the earth is just spinning round and around That we are in this endless cycle. I call it the, the cycle of the circle of life, or the, the Lion King theory. That's what I call it, in that, that, that respect. And, and I call it that because if you, you remember the Lion King, which is one of my all-time favorite Disney movies, but if you remember the Lion King, there was a point or a scene in a movie where, where Simba goes and, and he asks his, his dad, Mufasa, or, you know, like, why do we eat the the, the gazelles or the, the, what was that? It was yeah. ant- antelopes? Was that it? One of those animals, right? So, so Simba asks his dad, "Why do we eat the antelope?" Right? And, and his dad goes on to describe the circle, as we call it, the circle of life. And he goes on to state that when the, when the lion eats the antelope, um, the lion when the lion dies, the lion body it disintegrates and it goes into the earth. And and his body now acts as a a sense of a a fertilizer, and that fertilizer allows the grass to grow, which the gazelle eats. And so he said, son, that is the the circle of life. That's that's what life is all about. It's just this big circle. And and for many people, that is their perspective on life, that there's no meaning to life, that we are all in this endless cycle of living and dying, and God is totally hands-off. And I get it. I get why people come to that conclusion. Um, I, I get why they, they think that God is hands off because they look at all of the horrific events in society. They look at all of the, the the wars. They look at all of the senseless murders. They look at the deaths of young children and babies. And, and in world history, we've had just some evil dictators put into office, like like Adolf Hitler. And so, so the thought for some is. God can't be actively involved in this world. There's no active plan or, or will of God in all of this. He has to be hands off. And so that's how people come to that conclusion. Say, God can't have an overall arching will in all of society. It just, it just can't be that way because of the, the tragedies that they see. But here's the thing. That's not the picture that the Bible paints of God. The Bible paints a a picture, or the Bible shows us a God who's very active in human history and who is directing all things towards his intended end. And in short, that intended end, in short, is the glory of his name and his Christ. In summary, that's what it's all of human earth, all of human history is pointing to this. It's the glory of his name and his Christ. So he is ultimately, or he is involved in this ultimate objective of, of glorifying his name and his Christ. And, and one of the ways that we see that, how God is involved in human history to glorify his name and, and glorify his Christ, is, is in Matthew 17. In Matthew 1.17, we see that there were 42 generations up into the Messiah, that, brought, that came to the Messiah. There were 42 generations leading up to the Messiah. So God had protected this line, this line of David. He had protected this line and his promises, guess what? Over hundreds of years, through many wars, famines, exiles, many rulers and political leaders. So so it, it's not the end of the world, my brothers and sisters, when, when your political rival gets into office. No matter what you think about President Trump or Obama, guess what? There have been worse people went into political office and I've done more harm to Christians. Think of Nero, for example. Right? Anybody know of Nero? Yes. Nero would literally burn Christians. He would use them as his lamp. So he would put them on a stick, impale them in a stick, and he would burn them in his garden and use Christians as a lamp. So, so th- th- As a light. So there were many people that have come into political office and places, guess what? Yet God was still and is still working To bring all things towards his intended conclusions. So my brothers and sisters, in in this life, in this world, when we go through and and things don't make sense that we're seeing in society, in our world. when things just don't add up. I want to remind you what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55.9. He says this, far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, your thoughts. So God's ways are truly a mystery to us, yes. So Paul calls it the mystery of God's will. It's hidden from us, and it doesn't always make sense to us. But here in Ephesians 8-10, we see God's kindness and grace. Because God is now going to let us in on the mystery of his will that he has concealed in himself, that he's been concealing in himself. He's going to bring us in on the mystery of his will, the thing that he is working to bring all things to the end of, or the thing that all things are working towards. He's going to bring us to an understanding of that here in the text of Ephesians 1.8. told you that was a long introduction, right? So let's look at Ephesians 1.8 and look at the B portion again. Yeah. And we're going to take this bit by bit, just a little few parts, a few words, the parts of the verses. We're not going to take it all as a whole. But in 1A, he says, the B portion, at least my Bible, after he says he has lavished on us, he says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. In all wisdom and insight, he, who is was he? God the Father. Made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, basically, or his good pleasure. So he made the mystery of his will known, according to the kind intention or the good pleasure of his will. Now think about this: what we just read. Paul just finished showing us in verses three through eight. Paul just finished showing us how we have been lavished in God's grace. Particularly in last week's text when we talk about redemption, right? Paul shows us that we have been lavished in God's grace. Remember Romans says that we are standing in grace because God has saved us or redeemed us from the slavery of sin. He has redeemed us from the wrath of God that will come upon us. So, so Paul has already shown us how God by his grace has saved us and redeemed us and made us his children. But now here in this text we're looking at, Paul is going to show us how that same grace that redeemed us, that same grace that saved us from the grips of sin is now extending itself into the sharing of God's wisdom and insight. That is the disclosing of God's mysterious will, his grand plan. So that same grace that saved you. The same grace that brought us redemption through the blood of Jesus is now lending itself by showing his church, the believers, his mysterious will, the grand plan that he has had in himself, hidden within the triune God. So, in verse 7 and 8, we go from focusing on this. This is important. So, in verse 7 and 8 in Ephesians, we go from focusing on the how of our salvation to verse 9 and 10, which focuses on the why of our salvation. So we're going from the how of our salvation to the why of our salvation. The how of our salvation is, as we seen last week, that we are redeemed how? By the blood of Jesus. That is how we are saved. That is how we are made one with God. And it's not based on your works. It's not based on how cute or how good you look. It's not based on how many people you help, but that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. That is the how of our salvation. Now... We're focusing on, and this text here, 8 and we're focusing on the, the why of our salvation. So he saved us, but but why? Right? We know that he did it, but but why now? And the why of our salvation can be segmented or broken into two. We know that he saved us because of John three sixteen. What? It's the love of God. So we know that's part of the why of our salvation. God is rich in love and mercy. He's seen his fallen creation broken. He's seen you and I broken, fallen. He's seen us in the bondage of sin. He's seen our tears. And God has mercy. And because of his love for his image bears, his creation, he goes and sends his son to redeem us. So that's that's part of the why um, of our salvation. It's his love. We know that. That's an important reason why God provides salvation. But the number two is, which I already mentioned, is the glory of God and his Christ, which we have already seen again in Ephesians 3.8, where Paul shows us how God has blessed us. Remember, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, what? In Christ. How God has chosen us from the foundation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless before him. How God in love has predestined us to the adoption of son through Jesus Christ. And how does Paul end that verse in verse 6? To the praise of the glory of his grace. See, all of that should lend itself to you praising God for the glory of his grace. That is the why, right? It's the glory of his name, his grace. It's Messiah. That's what God is doing it. It's the glory of his name. So today as we dig into the, the why of our salvation, we're really getting into the mind of God. We're getting to the mind of God, which is really all by grace because God does not owe us, guess what, any explanation as to why he is doing what he does. All right. God does not owe human history any explanation. We are not his counselors. He does not have to consult us. See, as when, it kind of reminds me of, of, of God when he responded to Job. You remember what God said when he responded to Job in Job 38.4? When Job was over there in his own arrogance questioning God and wanted to know him and demanding an answer? What does God tell Job in 38.4? In he says this. I love this. This is God just dropping a mic on Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job can't say nothing, right? <laughs> You're right, Lord. So that, that, that just stopped the whole argument, right? Like, you over here with these questions, where were you when I, when I, when I fell on the earth? Where were you? And Job couldn't say anything. See, God, God doesn't owe us an explanation. Anytime He gives us insight to what He's doing, guess what? It's an act of His grace, it's His kind intention to God, to God to uh, disclose to us this, this mystery. Of his will. Now, this mystery of His will that we're getting to—what you must understand—it's—it's it's a big deal. It's—it's it, it's such a big deal that guess what? That not even the people of old, the Old Testament prophets, not even them, even though they would prophesy about future events, they never knew what God was really up to in the world. Yes, they had some bits and pieces. They they had some types and shadows. There were some little hints there you can find in Isaiah, but not even the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the, of the glories to come had a full understanding of what, what God was up to. They, they didn't have a full understanding of His overarching will or what He was pointing or what things were leading to. And, and an example of this, I mean, is is, is in First Peter one, verses ten to twelve where Peter, he shows us the, the fog that these prophets were in. Even though they would say and reveal these glorious mysteries, they fully didn't understand what was happening and, and what was going on. Um, look, look at First Peter real quick, 1, 10 to 11. I know that's the name we were reading there with the... Uh, <coughs> I'm gonna just read you first Peter one look what he says about these prophets. Jeez, you know how they fully they were gonna the fall. They really didn't have clarity on what God was doing with Himself to to here. But he says this. He says, As as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know they wanted to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow So these Old Testament prophets, they they knew that a Messiah was coming. They they knew that God had a Messiah, but as far as the actual person and the times and and the events that would take place in this Messiah and all the things that he would do and what he was ultimately accomplishing, they were in the dark on even though they gave us these, these glorious prophecies, even though they spoke truth in what they were saying, and those prophecies have come to pass and will come to pass, they ultimately didn't understand what God was really doing. They were dark on some of the aspects of, of God's will. And guess what? If you, if you keep reading here, this is really big. If you keep reading here in 1 Peter, if you look at verse 12, at the end, you're going to see not only that the Old Testament prophets, not only were they in the dark on God's ultimate will and what he was accomplishing through his salvation and how it would all work, but look who else was in the dark. I'm going to read to you what it says here. He says, it was revealed to them, this is verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, but you in these things which now have been announced to you, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look what he says. Things unto which angels what long to look, angels long to look. So, so not even the angels had clear understanding or clarity on what God was ultimately up to in His plan of salvation and His oath and his, and his will. Not even the heavenly hosts were fully informed into this mysterious will that God had hidden in Himself. In Himself. So that's why I said this. this is a, a big deal. Paul Matter of fact he even makes his, this point clear about the angels not knowing in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10. Go back to Ephesians and look at this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. The highlight even the, the ignorance that the angels had. And we're going to come back to this verse later, but I just want to show you this moment right here. But look what he says here. I'm going to read verse 8 to 10. He says to me, this is Paul talking about the mystery. Remember he calls it mystery. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of what? The mystery. Remember God's will is a mystery hidden. The mystery which for ages has been hidden where in God, so nobody knows, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known Through the church to what? The rulers and authority in the what? Heavenly places. So what are you saying? Not even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places knew what God was ultimately doing in his will. That's the point I'm making. The Old Testament prophets didn't know. The angels didn't know. Yes, people had bits and pieces here, but nobody fully understood God's ultimate overarching will. This mysterious will that he has. This is something big that Paul is showing us. So back to Ephesians 1. So we just looked at how, in his wisdom and insight, it says that he made known to us the, the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed, what? In him. He purposed in him. Now, this verse that says he purposed in him is speaking of Christ. But if you have the King James Version, I'm going to let you know that it reads a little bit different. If you have the King James Version, when it says that he uh, purposed in him, your King James Version will say that he purposed in himself, pointing to God the Father. But in doing some research in the Greek and looking at multiple translations, um, I think the best reading of this verse is that the, God's mysterious will has his purpose in Christ. So I would say meaning that Christ is the center of God's mysterious plan. Christ basically is a star of God's mysterious plan. So that's why he says this plan that he purposed in him, meaning in Christ, is in Christ. Christ is the star, he's the center; he's the way that this plan that God has had in himself that is going to come to pass. So it's in Christ where we find the center of this plan. And we, we really can see that in Scripture because you can tell, as we mentioned in Matthew 1-17, how to 42 generations... He preserved his life so that the Messiah could come, that he intervened in human history so that this Messiah would come and, and do the work that the Father has called to do. So we see again that Christ is the center of this mysterious will and plan that God has in himself. Let's look at 10. This is where the meat and potatoes come. This is where all the confusion comes from. Not confusion, but just different takes on it. 10 says this, remember he, um, in him always been inside, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, there it goes, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. earth. So, Kind of make this in, in layman's terms, right? That's a mouthful of all that, What the fullness of time, the dispensation, what is God, what is He saying? <clears throat> so, God has a plan. I'm trying to read this, but I wrote it down. God has a plan, and the dispensation of this plan, dispensation, another word for dispensation is economy, it's how something is working. So, the economy of this plan, meaning how it would come to pass is that at the fullness of time, the fullness means at the completeness of time, or the right time, so some of your translations will say, at the right time, that God the Father will sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. So you are like, okay, this is the overarching mysterious will of God that has been hidden in him, which is going to lead to the glory of his name and his Christ. Some of you are still like, okay, I don't get it, right? This is this is the ultimate rule. This is the plan. That in Christ, God is going to, at the fullness of time, the right time, sum up all things in the heavens and the earth in Christ. Which will lead ultimately to the his major will, which is the glory of his name and the glory of his Christ. So let me put it another way. I know that way is still like, whoa. Another way of putting it is this. At, at a future point in time, God will unite or unify all things in heaven, in earth, in Christ, or under Christ, to the glory of his name and the glory of his Christ. Does that make a little bit more sense? Does it get a little bit more clear? That at some point, God's going to do this. So, ultimately, it's... Let me, let me step Um How do I say this? All right, so there's going to be a coming a point in time when all things will find their center or their place in Christ. And God is accomplishing this mission to bring all things to sum of all things in Christ through the gospel. See, the mission is to sum of all things in Christ. The gospel is a tool that God uses or right, is to this mission, which is the sum of all things in Christ. See, if, if you think the gospel is just about your personal relationship with God and you being right with God, yes, you're right, but then you're, you're not seeing the whole thing. The gospel, yes, it is serving this purpose of redeeming us from our sin and, and, and redeeming us or removing the wrath of God from us, but through the gospel, God is also working towards something else. And that is ultimately the glory of his name. So the summing up of all things in Christ, that is what God is using to ultimately glorify his name. That is the direction that all things in human history are pointing to. They're pointing to the summing up of all things in Christ to the glory of God's name and his Messiah. So Maybe, it, let me explain the Greek to you. Maybe it'll make a little bit more sense with this summing up, why he uses this term to sum up all things in Christ. This word sum, in my Bible, which if you have the King James, it'll say, to gather in one. It's a 15-letter Greek word. It's a 15-letter Greek word. I'm, I'm trying to pronounce it, but here we go. It's anikapolapomai. Anikapolapomai. That's the Greek word that's used here in verse 10, where it says that the Father is summing up all things in Christ. And remember, I told you this is going to get technical, so just try to stay with me here. So it's using this Greek word, anakepah, holoponite. No, <laughs> and this word that's used as sum up on the King James, to gather in one, it means to condense or summarize <laughs> under one heading. That's what it means. It means to condense or to arrange under one heading. And the perfect example of this, or that this, this word is used in another place in the scripture that really shows his meaning, is Romans 13.9. Turn with me there and I think it'll make a little bit more sense of why what, what Paul is using this word. And, uh, to show God's mysterious book. Go to Romans thirteen. Thirteen nine, We're going to look at 8. For so here, Paul is, he's describing how a person fulfills the law in a sense. Right? Look what he says in verse 8. Romans 8, 13. Or 13, eight. He says this, Owe oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And our brother Emil was encouraging us on this last week. So Paul says here, oh, oh, a person nothing but to love them, if you love your neighbor, you are fulfilling the law. Right? And look what he says in verse 9. Here's the point I'm going to bring to you. He says, For this, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up. It goes our words, summed up. It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." So you see how Paul is putting all of the law, right? All of the law, all of the commandments that God has given in the Old Testament law, he's now summing them up under this one heading. What is that? To love your neighbor as yourself. You see how he's summing up all things into this one phrase, to to love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, Example would be like, let's say you had a, a chalkboard or a whiteboard, right? And let's say you, you made a line, or even in a modern-day context, let's say you were working with Excel, right? I know I work with Excel. me I know you work with Excel. So, so, so say you're working with Excel, and you have a column. And in this column, you're going through and you're listing all of the law, all the things written in the law. You're going line by line, line by line, listing all of the things in the law. Once you get to the last commandment in the law, you go back to the top of your spreadsheet or the top of your column, and then you write to love your neighbor as yourself. You see how all of those things in the law are now being condensed, are now being placed under the heading of to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what Paul is using to describe the mystery of God. That at the right time, all things in, in heaven and the earth will find their orderly place under Christ. That's the point of the of the summing up of all things. All things will have their sum. All things will have their total Under Christ. And how is God going to bring this to pass? How is he going to bring all things in heaven and earth summed up in Christ? It is, again, through the gospel. See, the gospel, again, is subservient to this overarching will of God, which is to bring all things under one head, one subject, which is Christ, which is Christ. I want to show you something. Go to Ephesians. I'm sorry, not Ephesians. Colossians one, chapter one, verse nineteen and twenty. Are you guys getting a little bit more? I'm always summing it up. I'm trying to just make it as simple as I can without taking away from it. He's going to bring all of heaven and earth under Christ, under this one heading, through the gospel. The key thing that I want you to pay attention to and want to bring you to this text is that he said all things in heaven. Because when we think of the gospel, we often think of just earth, right? Us humans being reconciled to God. But somehow this gospel has this cosmic effect that not only affects affects us, you and I as people, but also the spiritual heavenly realm. So look what it says here in Colossians 119. Look what he says here. He says, for it was the Father's, Good pleasure, just like we see his good pleasure exposing us to his will. It is. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Talking about Christ. And through him, talking about Christ, guess what? Reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth or in the heavens. So you see that this gospel, the reach of the gospel, goes beyond you and I. That's why i say, if you think that the gospel is just about you and your personal sins, you have a teeny tiny gospel. The gospel is much larger than that, and it has a reach that goes all the way to the heavens. Somehow in God's mysterious plan, Jesus' blood on the cross has an effect in the heavenly realm. He says that Christ's blood has reconciled all things in heaven and earth to God. So that's telling you that this gospel that we preach and love is so much bigger and so much grander than you and I. It is not just about you and I. God is doing something much bigger through this gospel that it even affects the heavenly realm, the the spiritual realm. So we see that in the gospel, for example, John 12, 31, that... Satan is cast out, right? Satan, who was a ruler of this world through the gospel, is now being cast out of authority and power. Satan has defeated all the unseen things in the heavenly realms. Have their defeat through the gospel. And all those things in the heavenly realm that were out of order will now find their sum or their order in Christ on the fullness of times on that day when God brings all things in Christ. See, he's reconciling everything through the gospel. This is just a spiritual heavenly realm we're talking about here that God has um, reconciled to himself through Christ and the gospel. That's why I said it says your gospel is so big, brothers and sisters. Your gospel goes into every area. There's not one area that the gospel doesn't touch. It's bigger than just you and I. It's bigger than just your personal relationship with you. God. It's bigger. It's about God's glory that this gospel is ultimately aiming towards. It's about God's kingdom. See, this gospel's big. It has an effect that goes way beyond you and I. Think about this, how how the gospel, through the gospel, even the earth, our creation is affected by it. Because of our sin and our corruption, guess what? Even creation is corrupted by sin. Pastor Brian preached on that a few weeks ago. Romans 8. How the creation longs for the redemption, longs for the for the sons of God to get their glorified bodies. Why? Because when the sons of God get their glorified bodies, which is accomplished what through the gospel, through Christ. Guess what? Then all creation itself too will get its glorified self. So creation is looking for the Messiah to return to take those whom He has saved back. Why? Because then in creation gets a reveal, and they get a full new body. All of this is happening, what? Through Christ and the gospel. So creation itself will find its sum, its summing up, as Paul used, under, again, the hand of Christ. It will be all made new through Christ. That's the summing up of creation to the heavenly realm. But the mysterious part of God's will that Paul was most concerned with was the mystery, or or the mystery that that Paul was most concerned with in his summing, was the reconciliation of man to God, particularly the Gentiles. Paul in chapter 3, we'll get to there later, he shows that this mystery of God reconciling the Gentiles was something he was called to. So this gospel goes from the heavenly realms, reconciling all the world to God, it goes to creation, reconciling that to God and summing that up in Christ, and it goes to all of mankind, reconciling us to God, even the Gentiles, so that we will all find our sum, our number in Christ on the fullness of time, the day when God completes that work and brings all things under Christ. All things under Christ. Now, I, I want to go back to this, this point that I, I hit on earlier a little bit ago. And that the point that I made was that not even the angels understood God's mysterious plan. Not even the angels understood what he was doing. It was a mystery to them. Peter says that they longed to see his salvation or his plan. I want to give you this illustration when I think about the angels longing to see God's mysterious widows playing, it makes me think about the Super Bowl, which happened a couple of weeks ago, right? A couple of weeks ago, most of America, I know some of us are not football fans in here, but most of America was watching the game, right, they were watching a Super Bowl to see who would win. America's eyes were glued to the screen. They wanted to know who was winning, mm-hmm. who would and, win, and that's kind of how... When I read Peter saying how the angels are longing to see the salvation, that's kind of how I I, I imagine them. They're wondering, the angels, before the the gospel, before Christ came, the angels were up there wondering, okay, how was God going to do it, right? At what time and what place, what person, in what fashion, how was he going to redeem humanity? See, they they were longing to see God's mysterious plan. They they were longing to see how, how God was going to do it. And you know what God says, how he shows the world, how he's going to redeem humanity, the way that he shows the world his wisdom and how he's going to do it? Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Go back to verse 10. The angels all of them were wondering, how is God going to redeem humanity? How is God going to bring all things to Christ? How is God going to work and save this whole people who had, had sinned? How is God going to show all the rulers and authorities? Look what he says, how he's going to do it, how he's going to show them what is actually happening. Verse 10 he says, so that the wisdom, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You read, you, you understand what we just read here. It is through us, the church. That God shows the angels in the heavenly places his all-knowing wisdom, how he's going to redeem humanity. Do you see that? It's the church. It's the summing up of all things into this body called the church. This is how God shows the rulers and authority, his manifold wisdom, his entire plan of salvation. It is through who? Us, the church. That's how God shows the angels. Remember, the angels were longing to know and to see how God is going to work this this mysterious plan of bringing all things together. How is God going to do it? And God shows them his his all-knowing wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God. He shows the heavenly creatures and the heavenly places the beauty of who he is, how the scripture says, through the church. We, the church. We are the ones that God is using to show the angels and the heavenly places his mysterious will, his manifold wisdom, what he's doing and working in the world. Isn't that something? I mean, because when I think about it, I'm like, God, you could have just pointed to creation to show your ultimate wisdom and your manifold power that you have. You could have just pointed to the Grand Canyon. You could have just pointed to a beautiful sunset. You could have just pointed to, to the stars that we see in the sky. But no, Ephesians 3 says that, that Paul says that God is showing his manifold wisdom, his plan that he had concealed in himself. He's showing it to the heavenly realm, the angels, how through the church, through us, through you and I. That's how God is exposing his mysterious plan, his manifold wisdom to these creatures who are longing to see God's salvation and way to it. I don't want you, but that just leaves me at all. And it, it tells me that we, as brothers and sisters, we really have to love one another. We have to care for one another because it is through the church that God is putting his wisdom, his plan on display. It is through us, it's through the church. I just imagine the angels wanting to know the, the wisdom of how God is going to do it. And now they're, they're looking at the church and, and they're seeing us as a body. They're looking now because of the manifold wisdom of God and what God has done through Christ where before they were looking at they're seeing people killing one another but now because of the manifold wisdom of God they're seeing those, those same people who were killing one another are now loving one another. Those same people who were talking down with one another are now lifting each other up. Those same people who were stingy, thinking about themselves now have all things in common. Look at the manifold wisdom of God and His plan. That's the beauty of of God and what He's doing. See, church, we should be in a sense of all at this plan because the angels were. They were in awe of wondering how God was going to redeem this fallen earth. And he shows them to the church and He will show how, through the summing up of all things in Christ on the fullness of times on that day, His full wisdom, His full power and glory. Will be put on display. How, through us, the church—that is something. All things are working towards that end. The glory of God's name, the summing up of all things in Christ. Everything in human history, all things are working towards this ultimate end, which means that all of your past. All of the mistakes, all of like circumstances, all of our sicknesses and diseases, they're all working towards this point. It's the glory of God's name and his Christ. Nothing in your life is wasted. As a, just an example, I look at myself. Some of you know I have alopecia areata. That's an autoimmune disease, which is why like I'm bald. It's not like a male pattern baldness. But I've been dealing with this since I was eight or seven, seven or eight. So throughout my whole life, I would just lose my hair all my whole life. Um, you can imagine being a seven, seventh grader having skin bald hair like Michael Jordan. That was, the only, that was my only grace on um, the point. I would lie and say I'm trying to be like Michael Jordan. This was like in 96. But really, I would just use a razor because I had so many bald spots in my head. I would just shave my, my hair so you couldn't see them. And I hated that. But it was through that alopecia. Remember, I said, God uses all things. It was through my alopecia that brought me to Christ. Because it was through me dealing with the depression of my alopecia that I began to lose myself and look to something greater than myself. See, God was using my trials. He uses our diseases. He uses our sicknesses to point us to himself. See, he's working all things towards that end. Now I'm doing what? I'm glorifying his name. See, he used my issues and brought me to this place where all things in the earth is working towards, which is the glory of his name. So, everything, my brothers and sisters, all the mistakes that you've made, all of your regrets, things that you wish you can do over God, guess what? He's a great recycler. He's a great innovator. And he will use all of those trials, guess what? To fit into his grand narrative, his overarching plan, which is to sum of all things in Christ, which leads to the glory of his name and the glory of his Messiah. That is where all things are heading. That is the mystery of God's will that was hidden within his soul. That is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 8 through 10. that God has now shown us in the kindness of his mercy, his good pleasure. He's letting you in on everything that he's working towards. Which now gives us a perspective. Now we can go into the world and know that no matter what we're seeing, we know that God is working all things towards this end, things that don't make sense in this world, things that we're dealing with. We can now go. We have the assurance of knowing, Yet yeah, I don't understand it. But I know because Paul says that God is working all these things. All these things are leading to the summing up of all things in Christ, which leads to the glory and praise of the name of God and his Messiah. That's perspective that now we have as Christians that the world doesn't have. This mystery is still hidden to the world because they don't have eyes to see it. But you and I, we now have eyes to see it. So Paul is telling us to the Ephesians. He's bringing them in on the mystery, he's bringing them into the glory of God, a mystery that they were in the dark in. They had no idea, but now they have perspective. Now they know that all of their life is working towards this point. And nothing is happening just by chance, but that God is working towards this ultimate amen. So that is our text today, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you understand how God is been working, even in things you don't make sense, it's all fit into his grand narrative. Glorify his name and his Christ. And how on the fullest of times, all the things that we see in this world that are out of order, they will be ordered in Christ. You will be in that sum. You'll be numbered in that sum. Why? Because you have claimed the trust in Christ. And through Christ we get numbered in that sum. That's how we get placed under Him, under that heading through the gospel. So you are in that number. You are part of the process continue to go forward in following Christ, knowing that even the mistakes that you make, the things God is still working them all towards his ultimate end. That gives us hope. That tells me that when I fall, it's not over. That God is still working. We've seen how he even birthed in Israel 42 generations. He got involved in human history. He worked everything alive to bring forth his Messiah. So when I fall, it's not over. Because God is still working, this mission is not accomplished. And to that day, is the fullness of times, when everything is summed up in Christ. Let us pray. Holy Father, Lord God, I thank you for this glory, your word. Oh God, that you're showing your manifold wisdom to the powers and principalities and heavenly places through us, your church, showing your marvelous plan of redemption. To those who long to see in it, God, help us to know our place in it. Help us to play our role in it, to bring the people in this sum, in this number, through your gospel. Thank you for coming and redeeming us and saving us, Lord. You're mighty. It's in your sons, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.